We are in Nehemiah chapter 9 today. What we're going to see is that old adage is true. Confession is good for the soul. People try to figure out where is that phrase comes from. Well, it is actually a compilation of a couple of scripture passages. We'll be looking at one of them today, but it's just true. It's not necessarily salvific in any way for an unbeliever, but for a believer, confession is good for the soul. The Bible tells us this. What exactly is confession? Well, we'll see that in just a moment. But if you remember last week, the Spirit of God was working through the Word of God, and it was bringing life, it was bringing revival. People were weeping and joyful, and today what we're going to see is the revival also is going to bring obedience, and they're going to confess their sins here. The people will mourn and confess the sin. Uh, What particular sin is it? Well, I think the text is alluding to the point is they have been making some sort of these forbidden alliances with Gentiles. Remember, the Jews were supposed to keep themselves separate. And they had not followed that for so long. And so now they're going to confess that sin, but not just confess their sins, but the sins of their forefathers, which has a kind of a a sticky wicket. We'll take a look at that, what that might mean. But first off, the term confess, we use it in two ways, and the scriptures do as well. It can mean to agree with, meaning we are agreeing with the Lord that I just sinned against my wife or a friend, or something to that effect. Anything that opposes what the Bible says, I am under obligation, according to 1 John 1, 9, not to make myself righteous, because I'm already righteous in God's sight because of the Son, but to keep short accounts with the Lord. I agree with the Lord, what I did was wrong. And so confession means to agree with the Lord. Yeah, I'm admitting to wrong. And that's typically the way we use the word confess. And that's what will happen in the first part of this text. They will confess their sins. A second definition is to declare. When you confess something, you're confessing it, you're declaring it to be true. And that's what we'll see in the rest of the passage, where they will confess who the Lord is, and they will adore him in his righteousness, in his kindness, his incredible mercy towards them. We're supposed to to do that as well as part of the church. That's what we've been doing this morning. We're adoring the Lord, adoration. And then we'll see, they will also confess all the Lord has done for them. So it's not just who he is as the the triune God, who he is, but also what he's done, specific ways that the Lord has has benefited us in this life and in the life beyond. And what we're going to find out, and most importantly, perhaps, is the Lord keeps his word. And it's interesting because even from the very beginning in the garden, what was Satan basically questioning our first parents? God doesn't keep his word. He's not looking out for you. And they made people question, they made our first parents question his his wisdom and his goodness. Folks, Satan has nothing new up his sleeve. He does the same thing with us. When we begin to question his goodness, his wisdom towards us, does he really keep his word? We fall into the sin of our first parents. So beware. We're going to take a look at that today. 
This is the word of God, chapter nine, verse one and two. Now, on the 24th day of this month, the people of Israel were assembled with fasting and in sackcloth and with earth on their heads. And the Israelites separated themselves from all foreigners and stood and confessed their sins and the iniquity of their fathers. So this is the 24th day. This is two days after their feast of booths that they had. Uh, and they're gathering today for fasting. It's sort of a national day of repentance. Not only are they not eating, they're also dressing in different ways than you and I would like to. They're dressing in sackcloth. And people say, what is, what is sackcloth? Well, it's made of goat's hair. Uh, it's not comfortable. The best way I would describe it for what you and I might be familiar with would be something like burlap. It's similar in texture. It's kind of rough, scratchy canvas for sacking potatoes, or you may have used them in a three-legged race. But what the idea is, you want your outside to feel as uncomfortable as your inside. You want your outside to feel as uncomfortable as your inside. It's a reminder of your sin, your mourning, your humility before the Lord. You're even putting what on your heads? Dirt. They just pull it right up. They would sometimes fling it in the air or they would just throw it onto their heads. Remember, what does man come from? Dirt. So this is the picture that you have before them is the humility and mourning and sin. And they are so saddened by what they have done for now generations, it seems, uh, that they are continuing to uh, make alliances with the Gentiles. Now, I gotta tell you this, to the, to the modern reader, this looks disturbing. Uh, there's some concerns, and I'd like to just address those three before we go any further. First off, to some of us, we might look and go, this looks like worm theology. And you say, what's worm theology? Well, it's a terminology that I'm not a fan of, but the point of it is, is one of the uh, definitions of of worm theology is in light of God's holiness and power, an appropriate emotion is a low view of self. And they will say, that's that's bad. And before we believe something, we need to take off our glasses that we hold to every day and hold, put forth our biblical glasses and say, what does the Bible say about this? Is it wrong to have a low view of yourself? Well, Keep your finger there, go to Luke 18. I won't really explain this passage, but just more of a cursory look at it. Luke 18, you have two men before the Lord and only one of them does God consider righteous. Not because of his actions, but because of something that has already gone on in the inside of his soul. Luke 18, verse nine through 14, the Pharisee and the tax collector. Jesus also told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and treated others with contempt. Two men went up into the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee, standing by himself, prayed thus, God, I thank you that I am not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I get. But the tax collector, standing afar off, would not even lift up his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. 
So in God's sight, I think a low view of self is a phenomenal thing. What does John the Baptist say when people come to him and say, hey, everybody's following your cousin, Jesus? And John said, he must increase, I must decrease. And then you have to wonder, is there any time in Scripture where a man is called a worm? Yeah, actually, Job 25, Psalm 22, Isaiah 41. Now, be careful with this. I'm not saying we're not made in God's image. And certainly, that's one of the reasons why we take such a strong stand for life and against abortion is because no matter what the person's situation is, they're made in God's image. And so we, there's some honor in that. But simply as it relates to the Lord, uh, that we are made in his image. But it's not bad to have a low view of yourself. One of our problems perhaps in our society is we think too highly of ourselves. Spurgeon writes this way. He says, when you feel yourself to be utterly unworthy, you have hit the truth. And now the only reason we are worthy in God's sight is simply because the blood of Christ that covers us. That's it. And I would say the more you grow in the Christian life, the more you become aware of your sin. Later in life, Paul can write in 1 Timothy 1.5, or rather 1.15, Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am chief. This wasn't right after he had persecuted Christians. This was years and years later. But even in Paul's own sanctification, he would look and say, what do you mean by worm theology? Of course, we don't call it that. But certainly to be low before the Lord is a great place to be. Continuing on, there's another view perhaps that another concern would be, this looks like racism. They want to separate themselves out from the Gentiles. What's that about? Well, remember, Israel is called to be separate. Why? Because the Messiah is going to come through their loins. Leviticus 20, 26, God says, you shall be holy to me for I, the Lord, am holy. And I have separated you from the peoples that you should be mine. You are separate out. So they were called to be separate. And finally, the third reason, perhaps this looks concerning, is this looks like God needs to be convinced to look out for his people. Does he need to be convinced to look out for his people? No, no. The Lord takes care of his own, and yet note, the people are not most important in God's eyes. Do you know that? There's old songs out there that says something to the effect of God loves people more than anything. That's not true. God does love people, but not more than anything. Uh, Jonathan Edwards writes a lot about this that God is so rich in mercy, and it's not for our benefit, ultimately, it's for his glory. Uh, John Piper writes this, uh, God's chief end is to glorify God and enjoy his glory forever. This is God's chief end. If, by the way, if that wasn't God's chief end, God would be guilty of idolatry. He's not an idolater because he is the best in the universe. He has to prize that above all things. Continuing on, um, God's most fundamental allegiance is to his own glory. Why is this important? Many people are willing to be God-centered as long as they feel that God is man-centered. It is a subtle danger. Beware. We may think that we are centering our lives on God when we are really making him a means to our own self-esteem. 
Over against this danger, I urge you to ponder the implications that God loves his glory more than he loves us. And this is the foundation of his love for us. This is no isolated note in the symphony of redemptive history. It is the ever-recurring motif of the all-sufficient composer. So you have these questions that arise in Scripture. Why does God predestine us in love to be his sons? Why does he do that? The Bible tells us in Ephesians 1 that the glory of his grace might be praised. Another question, why did God create a people for himself? He tells us, Isaiah 43, 7, I created them for my glory. Why did he make from one lump vessels of honor and vessels of dishonor? And that's coming straight out of Scripture. Why believers? Why unbelievers? He he says that he might show his wrath and make his power and reveal the riches of his glory for the vessels of mercy, Romans 9. Why did God raise up Pharaoh and harden his heart and deliver Israel with a mighty arm? Answer, that his wonders might be multiplied over Pharaoh, Exodus 14.4, and that his name might be declared in all the earth. Be careful. Don't call God selfish. This is not his selfishness. This is his glory. And because he loves his glory, he shows his great mercy upon us because that's the way he showcases it to the universe. And so if you want a good working um, outline of this, to, to showcase God's glory is what the people are gonna do. They're just gonna have a long history lesson about how God showed him his glory. You see in the outline, the verse four through six is God the creator. Verse seven and eight, God calls out Abram. Verse nine through 11, God calls his people out of Egypt. Verse 12 through 21 is the wilderness. Verse 22 through 25 is the conquest. And finally, the rest of it is really the book of Judges. Sorry, verses 26 to 29 is the book of Judges. And then, next slide, please. There you go. The book of Kings and the exile is verse 30 and 31. And then verses 32 through 37 he'll say, we've got the regathering all together and we're gonna see a request come forth, okay? So continuing on with verse two, we're gonna go through this fairly quickly after this, but notice what the people do. They stood and they confessed their sins. The English term sin comes from the Greek word hamartia. What does that mean? Well, when it's an archery term. And when people would shoot at their bow and arrow at the target, if they missed the bullseye, they would say hamartia, or in the English, sin. Why would they call that out? Because you missed the mark. And for us believers, we know that what does that really mean in regards to God? It means you missed the mark of God's perfection. And so therefore, we're all sinners in all different sorts of ways, but we are all sinners. No one is not a sinner except for Jesus Christ. That's the only human who is also God. Um, So what do they do? They confess. To confess, once again, in this context, would be to agree with God about his righteousness and my sin. But also, there's this word repent that we should probably include in the mix of this. You see, the word confess and repent are not the same terms. But oftentimes, they work sort of as synonyms of each other. Confess in this passage at the beginning just means to agree with God. What I did was wrong. And yet, oftentimes with that, there's this, uh, there's this word repent that is not in, 
in the, uh, rather it's not in the verse itself, but that's what it means. The people are repenting. They are turning away from sin. And that's what it means to repent. It means to turn away. It means a change of mind that results in a change of action. Change of mind that results in a change of action. So this is what's happening here. Uh, they're changing their mind, realizing that by the Spirit's help, what we've done is wicked. And because of that, there's a change of action. Uh, Spurgeon talks about repentance, and he says this, repentance grows as faith grows. Do not make any mistake about it. Repentance is not a thing of days and weeks, a temporary penance, it's not penance, to go over as fast as possible. No, it is the grace Let me turn the page. It is the grace of a lifetime, like faith itself. Repentance is the inseparable companion of faith. So when we confess, when we agree with God what we've done, and once again, repentance is is typically a part of that, change of mind resulting in a change of action, that's what's happening here. So question, do we just confess to God? No, the Bible actually says, James 5, 16, confess your sins to one another and pray to one another so you may be healed. Is that healing referring to physical healing or spiritual? I think it could be both. It's important to confess your sins to one another. There's certain people out here, and I'm going to look at the ceiling so you won't think I'm speaking about you. (laughs) Some folks that don't say they're sorry. I just, I don't like to say it. It's interesting because what oftentimes they will say is, I don't, don't like to say it. As if any of us like to say, I was wrong. Will you forgive me? We hate that. I hate that phrase. I don't like it any more than you do. But the Bible says this is what believers do. What if you're a believer and doesn't, and you don't do that sort of thing? We'll tackle that at the end. Continuing on, though, what are they confessing? They're confessing their sins, but also the iniquity of their fathers, The iniquity of their fathers? What's that about? Well, you see this in Daniel 9, Ezra 9, and Nehemiah 9, also other places of the Old Testament. What does that mean? Well, just to be clear, Ezekiel 18, 20, God does not punish children for the father's sin. He's telling them there, the soul who sins shall die. I'm not gonna take it out on your kids for what you did. But then some of you really smart theologians right now are starting to go, wait a second. What about Deuteronomy 5.9, visiting the iniquities of the fathers and the sins of the fathers to the third and fourth generation? What does that mean? It must mean the generational curse. No, it does not mean that. I beg of you, think differently than generational curse. I've heard that from so many believers, and I just don't think there's a biblical uh, strong suit for it. I know where they're getting it, but I think they're they're interpreting it wrong. Well, what does that mean, that the sins go to the third and fourth generations? I think if you just look around, you know what it means. The sins of the parents often have consequences for the kids. You see, none of us sins by ourselves. It affects your family, and it can affect your grandkids as well. I would say like this, when your kids see you, maybe you think you're sinning in the minors, but they're going to sin in the majors. And for those folks that have kids or are kids, I think that completely fills in everybody here or was once kids, you know what I refer to. Oh, why do I do that? My dad would do that or my mom would do that. 
And then you see your kids do the same thing and you're horrified, like, ah, that's me. No, that's not you. They've been watching you. Most things from your kids are more caught than taught, I think. So children, I'm looking at y'all now and I would say this, you had better learn from your parents' sins because you're gonna replicate them. You're gonna commit the same ones, but it's gonna be worse oftentimes. So why did they confess the father's iniquities? You still haven't told us that yet. Well, I'll tell you, I think twofold. Number one, Israel in particular had a unity with past generations. They were God's chosen people. Americans are not God's chosen people. Israel was, and now it's people from every tribe, tongue, people, and nation that believe in Israel's God. Um, So that's part of it. But also, I would note this. They were presently committing the same sins. They're saying, Father, we're we're so wrong about what our fathers did. And by the way, we're doing the same things. So it was combined. Psalm 106 relates to this, verse six. Both we and our fathers have sinned. We have committed iniquity. We have done wickedness. So I've told you this before, I think, in Ezra 9. Does it ever apply to the church? Should the church ever apologize for our sins and the sins of our fathers? Certainly, if that should be the context. We see after World War II, the German evangelical church had to confess their sins against the Jews. They should have defended the Jews. They should have kept them from the from the prison camps and from the gas chambers, and they didn't. Oftentimes, they just said, well, I'm not Jewish. The Ten Booms were good examples of people that did not follow that. But many evangelical Germans did so. Even in our country, you have to wonder after the Civil War, the slave owners, should they have confessed the sin of American slavery? Unlike biblical slavery, American slavery was perpetual and and it was race-based. And you go, well, why didn't they do that? Well, we don't really know. Some may have, but I I would put forth these arguments if you're just wondering. Number one is this had been practiced for generations. The German church just started dealing with the Jews in the 1930s. This sort of thing would had take place for generations. Keep in mind, it, though, it wasn't until the 1670s that, that uh, blacks only would be slaves in America. Before that time, you had Indian slaves, you had, you had European slaves or sometimes indentured servants, but the, it, didn't, it wasn't a, based on a color line, not until the 1670s, and that began to, to grow with Virginia and beyond that. Number two, it's important to note, that was still practiced by the world. People that study slavery in America, they go, oh, it's a horrible thing that we did that, and I agree. But they look at like, that's the only country. No, actually, thankfully, the West was the first group of peoples and nations that got rid of slavery. It still existed. And we would go further and say, it still exists to this day. Perhaps the worst kind, because now it's sex slavery, and more people are slaves now than ever before in the history of the world. Uh, And finally, we we should remember that repentance is a gift. Some of the former slave owners uh, did not repent. But you know what? Their sons and grandkids did. And when they look back and they go, why did they do that sort of thing? So, continuing on. Verse three through six, and they stood up in their place and read from the book of the law of the Lord their God for a quarter of the day, 
For, for another quarter of it, they made confession and worshiped the Lord their God. On the stairs of the Levites stood Jeshua, Bani, Kadmiel, Shebaniah, Buni, Sherebiah, Bani, and, Sh- and Cheshnai, and they cried with a loud voice to the Lord their God. Then the Levites, Jeshua, Kadmiel, Bani, Hashabaniah, Sherebiah, Hodiah, Shebaniah, and Pethaliah said, Stand up! Bless the Lord your God from everlasting to everlasting. Blessed be your glorious name, which is exalted above all blessing and praise. You are the Lord, you alone. You made heaven, the heaven of heavens with all their hosts, the earth and all that is on it, the seas and all that is in them, and you preserve all of them, and the host of heaven worships you. So the way it works, they had three hours of reading and preaching, three hours of confession and worship to God, and what are they doing? They're confessing their sins, but they're also confessing how great God is and what he has done for them. And looky here, we have Genesis 1, God is the creator. Now look up here. Some of y'all might go, well, how interesting. Why did they say heaven, earth, and sea? Well, Israel knows something that you and I don't know today. We don't realize that the ancients worshiped gods based upon if they considered them gods of heaven, earth, or sea. They saw it as three parts of earth. And so in Babylon, you would worship Anui, Enlil, and Enki because of the three gods that took care of those three parts of the world. But Israel said, no, we worship one God and he is sovereign over all parts of it. And sometimes the church needs to remember that, God's sovereignty, that not a sparrow falls to the ground apart from the will of your father. And even the very hairs of your head are all numbered. Why does God say that? because he knows personally when every hair falls out. That's how sovereign he is, even over hair, dead skin cells. God is sovereign. Verse seven through 11, you are the Lord, the God who chose Abram and brought him out of Ur of of the Chaldeans and gave him the name Abraham. So he went from exalted father to father of many nations. You found his heart faithful before you and made with him the covenant to give to his offspring the land of the Canaanite, of the Hittite, the Amorite, the Perizzite, the Jebusite, and the Girgashite. And you have kept your promise, for you are righteous. And you saw the affliction of our fathers in Egypt and heard their cry at the Red Sea and performed signs and wonders against Pharaoh and all his servants and all the people of his land. For you knew that they acted arrogantly against our fathers And you made a name for yourself as it is to this day. And you divided the sea before them so that they passed through the midst of the sea on dry land. And you cast their pursuers into the depths as a stone into the mighty waters. So what do you have? Verse seven through 11, you have Abram. He can't have children. He and Sarah are too old. And God gives them life in Isaac. And he basically, Abram becomes the father of many nations, but in particular, he's the father of Israel. And then he starts talking about the Exodus and how the Lord brought them out from Pharaoh. Let's take a look now at the wilderness, verse 12 through 15. By a pillar of cloud, you led them in the day and by a pillar of fire in the night to light for them the way in which they should go. You came down on Mount Sinai and spoke with them from heaven. You gave them right rules and true laws good statutes and commandments. And you made known to them your holy Sabbath and commanded them commandments and statutes and a law by Moses, your servant. 
You gave them bread from heaven for their hunger and brought water for them out of the, out of the rock for their thirst. And you told them to go in to possess the land which you had sworn. Literally in the Hebrew, you had lifted up your hand. You ever see people do this when they're swearing? That's the, that's the uh, um, phrase right here. That God lifted up his hand. He swore to give them. Here we have Exodus, that God is a lawgiver. How would you, let me ask you this, how would you know God's commands unless he told us? And you might say, well, you just kind of know from the inside. Well, we do have a conscience, so God in some sense has that for all humanity, and yet Paul can also say in Romans 7, I would not know what coveting was unless God had told me. I think some of us have forgotten what coveting is talks about this in Exodus 20. It's this inner desire, this sort of excessive, inordinate desire that you have something that belongs to your neighbor and you want it. Could be your neighbor's wife, could be your neighbor's house, could be his servant, and you want it. It's interesting because a lot of unbelievers think, well, yes, I know murder is wrong and obviously lying is wrong, but they don't deal with the inside. And sometimes we believers get just like them and we fail to note that what's going on in the inside, this is against God. Just because it doesn't have action, physical action, doesn't mean that God hates what I'm thinking right now and feeling right now. So he gives them laws. What else does God give them in these verses? He shows that he's the leader and the provider. Remember, believer, Psalm 68, 19, blessed is the Lord who daily bears our burdens. Some of us worry about stuff in the future, and God continues to tell us, give us our, this day our, what bread? Daily. He daily bears our burdens, takes care of us one day at a time. Even in his kindness, God give Israel a day off work, and then he provides for them with the manna. Verse 16 and 17, but they and our fathers acted presumptuously and stiffened their neck and did not obey your commandments. They refused to obey and were not mindful of the wonders that you performed among them. But they stiffened their neck and appointed a leader to return to their slavery in Egypt. But you are a God ready to forgive, gracious and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love, and you did not forsake them. Y'all remember the story, right? In Numbers 13, where the people said, we don't even, basically, we don't even like this bread. But the Bible says the bread was very tasty that God delivered to them every day. And they said, we want to go back to Egypt. The food was better there. Well, you were slaves. Whatever. We want to go back. And they had this rebellion at Kadesh Barnea. And it doesn't say stubborn. It says, you stiffened your neck. I don't know about y'all, but sometimes I can get a stiff neck. It's not what it's referring to. It's the idea is that you were intransigent. You would not move. You looked at God's mercy and you kicked it to the curb. You're like, whatever. What has he done for me today? And they stiffen their neck. They refuse to listen. But what is interesting, it says, but you are a God ready to forgive. This is so interesting what it says in the Hebrew. You are a God of forgiveness. Let me see if I can say this right. Forgivenesses. He doesn't say forgiveness. You are a God of forgivenesses. Why, why such poor grammar? Well, 
It's, it keeps in, God keeps on forgiving his repentant people over and over and over again, just like he does with us. He is a God of forgivenesses. Well, the wilderness wanderings is where God sends them in verse 18 through 21. Even when they made for themselves a golden calf and said, this is your God who brought you up out of Egypt and had committed great blasphemies. You in your great mercies did, did not forsake them in the wilderness. The pillar of cloud to lead them in the day did not depart from them by day, nor the pillar of fire by night to light for them the way by which they should go. You gave your, uh, your good spirit to instruct them and did not withhold your manna from their mouth and gave them water for their thirst. Forty years you sustained them in the wilderness and they lacked nothing. Their clothes did not wear out and their feet did not swell. <laughs> so God sends them into the wilderness. And some, sometimes we fail to note that this was great mercy to send them in the wilderness. Why? Because if they had gone off to fight the Canaanites, they would have lost. They would have gotten just exterminated. And God sends them in the wilderness, but notice he guides them the whole way. Uh, their feet did not swell in the midst of that desert land, and their clothes did not wear out. Now think about what this would be. Folks, they're wearing clothes by the end of that time could have been 40, 50-year-old clothes in the wilderness. <laughs> I mean, some of you, you're ready to throw out your clothes after a season. You're like, bye-bye. And God protected their clothes in the midst of that wilderness. And notice what they did. They made a calf that kind of brought this all about. It's interesting. God didn't even kill them for that calf. They had to drink the nasty shards of the calf where Moses made them drink basically water with, the, with a mixture of the gold but God didn't kill them. And notice, God doesn't kill us either when we commit idolatry every day. 1 John 5, 21, John says, Dear children, keep yourselves from idols. And you say, I don't have idols. I just love my family. Maybe you just revealed your idol. Or maybe you love your job, and that's your idol or whatever talent God has given you is your idol. John Calvin put it this way, the human heart is an idol factory. Oh, but he's talking about unbelievers. Au contraire, he's talking to believers. That's why we need to be careful. Verse 20 through 25, we've got the conquest. And you gave them kingdoms and peoples and allotted to them every corner so they took possession of the land of Sihon, king of Heshbon, and the land of Og, king of Bashan. You multiplied their children as the stars of heaven, and you brought them into the land that you had told their fathers to enter and possess. So the descendants went in and possessed the land, and you subdued before them the inhabitants of the land, the Canaanites. You gave them into their hand with their kings and the peoples of the land that they might do with them as they would. And they captured fortified cities and rich land and took possession of houses full of all good things, cisterns already hewn, vineyards, olive orchards, and fruit trees in abundance. So they ate and were filled and became fat and delighted themselves in your great goodness. Moses had told them beforehand, God's gonna give you a place and you won't have done anything to have achieved it. He says this in Deuteronomy 6, 10 through 12, that God would give them great and good cities they did not build, houses full of all good things. 
they did not fill, cisterns they did not dig, vineyards and olive trees that you didn't plant. And notice he says, and when you eat and are full, take care lest you, what? Forget the Lord. I mean, think about that, folks. That doesn't make sense, does it? God's given you all this and this and this and this and this. He goes, take care that you don't forget the Lord. And we would go, ha, ha, ha. Why would they forget the Lord? God's blessed them with so much. It's time to look in the mirror. As a matter of fact, I think our sin is more heinous than the Israelites because we are on this side of Calvary. Our God has even died for us in the person of Jesus Christ. Why should we ever question his ways? Why should we ever complain? The Lord's taking care of you. Verse 26 through 29, nevertheless, they were disobedient and rebelled against you and cast your law behind their back and killed your prophets who had warned them in order to turn them back to you. And they committed great blasphemies. Therefore, you gave them into the land, a hand of their enemies who made them suffer. And in the time of their suffering, they cried out to you and you heard them from heaven. And according to your great mercies, you gave them saviors or uh, rescuers who saved them from the hand of their enemies. But after they had rest, they did evil again before you and you abandoned them to their hand of their enemies so that they had dominion over them. Yet when they turned and cried to you, you heard from heaven and many times you delivered them according to your mercies and you warned them in order to turn them back to your law. Yet they acted presumptuously and did not obey your commandments, but sinned against your rules, which if a person does them, he shall live by them. And they turned a stubborn shoulder and stiffened their neck, there it is again, and would not obey. What's wrong with these people? What's wrong with us? Notice what they did wrong. One of the big things they did, they cast your law behind their back. We're doing fine. We don't need this anymore. And that is certainly what we see in the book of Judges. But throughout all the Old Testament, they were continuing to do this. Whenever the Lord seemed to bless them, they said, okay, we're fine. I got it. I got it. But notice this regarding this law of God, the word of God, verse 29. If a man does them, he shall live by them. You know what that means? <laughs> that means last week when I told you the word of God gives life, it really, really does. Deuteronomy 8, God says, man does not live by bread alone, but by man lives by every word that comes forth from the mouth of God. So the way it is, is you and I think we are living because we eat well, because we have enough money, because these physical blessings. You know, at least you have your health. At least you have your health. How many times have we heard that? That's not a biblical phrase. I'm thankful for my health, just to be clear. But then we think, well, now we're really living. And no, what we don't know is what's really giving us life is the word of God. I have a, I've mentioned my dog before, Luther. There's a word that Luther hates worse than anything else and you probably could guess it, it's bath. When I'll come in once every great while, I'll say, Luther, you want a bath? And he just flips over on his back and just plays dead. Like maybe if he thinks I'm dead, he won't bathe me. 
You see, he, he thinks he lives by the physical food that I feed him every day. He fails to note that only by the water and the washing of it do the fleas and ticks come off. That's the thing that gets him clean. That's the thing that helps him survive. That's the thing that makes the people actually want to hold him again because he smells decent now. Now, I'm not saying we look at the word of God in this way, but some of us do. We won't say it out loud, but we don't really want to get in it. We really don't want to study it. We're fine. I'm fine. And only when God in his providence sends us trials do we go, I need this word. Yeah, don't be like Luther. Verse 30 and 31, many years you bore them and warned them by your spirit through your prophets, yet they would not give ear. Therefore, you gave them into the hand of the peoples of the lands. Nevertheless, in your great mercies, you did not make an end of them or forsake them, for you are a gracious and merciful God. Once again, that's the book of Kings and eventually exile. They go into exile. Lastly, verse 32 through 37, now therefore, our God, the great, the mighty, and the awesome God who keeps covenant and steadfast love, let us... Let not all the hardship seem little to you that has come upon us, upon our kings, our princes, our priests, our prophets, our fathers, and all your people since the time of the kings of Assyria until this day. Yet you have been righteous in all that has come upon us, for you have dealt faithfully and we have acted wickedly. Our kings, our princes, our priests, our fathers have not kept your law or paid attention to your commandments and your warnings that you gave them, even in their own kingdom and and amid your own greatness, or rather goodness, that you gave them in the large and rich land that you set before them, they did not serve you or turn from their wicked works. Behold, we are slaves this day in the land that you gave to our fathers to enjoy its fruit and its good gifts. Behold, we are slaves. And its rich yield goes to the kings whom you have set over us because of our sins. They rule over our bodies and over our livestock as they please, and we are in great distress." Because of all this, we make a firm covenant in writing, and on the sealed document are the names of our princes, Levites, and priests. We'll see that covenant next week. But suffice it to say that God is saying, or rather, they're saying this, you're righteous in all that's happened. There is a belief of unbelievers of this, so rather Proverbs 19.3, a man's folly brings his way to ruin, yet his heart rages against the Lord. You did this to me. Instead of going, no, my own choices have done this to me. But not so a believer. A believer is one by God's grace that can, can say, Lord, whatever happens due to my own sin or the sin of others, we know that all things are working together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to his purpose. Um, ultimately, the people of Israel did not heed God's warnings and yet God still kept his promises. And so God, you can imagine, just look at them going, you don't like my governorship? Let me hand you off to Babylon in Persia and see if you like that better. And the people are now crying out saying, no, Lord, no, no, please no. So they're confessing. We're gonna see more of that next week. We'll get a fuller picture of this. But I would say this, if you're a believer today, Note that God has cast your sins as far as the east is from the west. We are not the exact same as Old Testament Israel here. If you have come to know Christ as your Lord and Savior, then God's righteousness is on you. It covers you. And yet at the same time, the Bible does say confess your sins. We need to keep short accounts with one another and 
with the Lord as well. The Bible says in Psalm 20, rather 62, 8, pour out your hearts before the Lord, for God is a refuge. Some of you are not in the practice of doing that, and I would encourage you to do that today. The Lord wants you to agree with him, to not stiffen your neck and say, no, this is just who I am. No, confess your sins to him. And if you're a person that doesn't like to confess sin, I told you I'd tackle you at the end of the service, spiritually speaking. You have an issue of pride that certainly needs to be confessed. None of us like to confess. Or let me give you another option. Maybe it's not pride. Maybe you're an unbeliever. That you've never come to place your faith in Jesus Christ alone. Last verse I put up before you is this. Verse John 1, 8 through 10, it compares believers and unbelievers. Verse 8 is about unbelievers. Verse 9 is about believers. Verse 10 is about unbelievers. It says this, if we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. A believer is a person that has the truth of God. Verse 8 is referring to an unbeliever. Verse 9, believer, if we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. That's a mark of a believer. In verse 10, he jumps back. If we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar and his word is not in us. The way of a believer is confession, not because he is in some way making himself good before God's sight. No way. He's good before God's sight because of Christ alone. Amen? And yet we keep short accounts with him. And as a constant reminder that I am the chief of all sinners and so are you. And yet, by God's grace, we are also saints in God's sight. I pray that you will come to that place today. Father, we thank you for your word, and we thank you for your grace, and we pray that you would just grant us today that we would seek first your kingdom. Lord, we don't. That's part of our issue. We seek our own kingdom. And so I pray that we would be people of confession. The early church, they would call them confessors. This is what believers do as much as we eat and breathe. And so we pray that you would help us today. We can be very prideful people. Help us as we struggle through this, Lord. And I pray for anybody in here who has not yet known Jesus Christ as their Savior and Lord. Grant them salvation today. Only you can do that, Lord. And we thank you for it. In your son's name, amen.